Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This Climate One podcast is sponsored by General Motors. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we'll learn what's going on with the weird weather in California and around the world. This year will almost certainly be the hottest ever recorded, and burning fossil fuels is largely the reason. Scientists are gaining better understanding of how humans are altering the Earth's operating system every time they plug in their phone or start their car. One result is beach weather in November and fewer foggy days along the California coast. The downside is that climate disruption is also driving more floods, droughts, and fires that hit the economy and cost everyone money. Over the next hour, we will talk about the latest climate science and what corporations and individuals are doing to move to a cleaner kind of capitalism. A lot of progress is being made. Innovative technologies and smarter companies are having a real impact that sometimes gets overshadowed by gloomy headlines. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us three guests. Tim Flannery is an Australian scientist and author of the new book, Atmosphere of Hope, Searching for Solutions to the Climate Crisis. Ben Santer is a climate scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Rebecca Shaw is a senior lead scientist with the Environmental Defense Fund. Please welcome them to Climate One. Rebecca Shaw, you were a budding what marine scientist in the late 1980s, and you were down in the Amazon and had kind of a climate epiphany. Tell us what happened. Yeah, I was a research assistant on a project. It was after I finished my undergraduate degree at UC Santa Barbara, and I was so excited to study the natural world. And and I went down there at the time when uh, there was a burgeoning um, understanding of what was going on with deforestation and its effect on climate. In fact, the Time magazine that that month that I went down, I'm pretty sure it was that month, had uh, a picture of the Amazon on its cover said the lungs of the earth, uh, really talking, really making the point that we were actually taking away our life support system. And the Brazilian government, I was just studying the natural world down there, living on a floating raft out in the middle of the rainforest, and 
And uh, the Brazilian government and the state governments down there were feared for their sovereignty, and they upped the pace to settle the Amazon. And we saw the lake we were living on go from complete 100% forested to 100% deforested in the very short amount of time. And that's when I really realized that the, it wasn't enough to study the natural environment, but it was uh, had to understand the natural environment and understand the social systems that were going to make it sustain it both both the biodiversity, but also the climate. And the mayor handed out chainsaws? Yeah, it was, the, it was the governor of Amazonas, the state of Amazonas, and it was actually uh, had a program where he was handing out chainsaws to uh, the settlers so that they could go and settle the land at the time. I'm not really sure how extensive the program was, but it certainly got the attention of all of us working down there. And, and it really was uh, a life-changing moment for me. Ben Santer, uh, you wrote a sentence uh, in 1995, famous sentence in climate. Uh, tell us about that sentence and what was the consequence of writing that sentence? Sure. In 1994, I received a phone call out of the blue and was asked to participate as a convening lead author for the climate change detection and attribution chapter of the second assessment report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. And I said yes, agreed to do it. One and a half years later, after uh, evaluating the scientific evidence, um, hundreds of studies, our group came to the historic conclusion that, quote, the balance of evidence suggests a discernible human influence on global climate. And I had no idea that that single sentence was going to change my life profoundly and really uh, change the world. Uh, It had significant impact in politics and science. Uh, It uh, caused me about one and a half years of grief defending that finding and the process by which it had been reached. But I learned a lot of important lessons. Uh, Words matter, and they can change the world. And it's uh, kind of sobering to think that it's now, this month, 20 years since that historic balance of evidence finding. How did it change your life? You were attacked by the Global Climate Coalition, which we've read about in the newspapers recently, has come to light through some uh, Los Angeles Times reports and others. How did that change your life? Well, the Global Climate Coalition, this consortium of energy interests, didn't like that balance of evidence finding. Because it said humans are causing it. We're the problem. It's not some, some you know, funny things in outer space, no Martians or whatever. It's humans are causing this disruption. It said we've evaluated the evidence, and for the first time, the national and international scientific community spoke with one voice and said, we've seen enough, and the evidence is pointing in one direction. Now, that cautious balance of evidence suggests statement was not eureka, there's water in the bathtub, we understand everything, but even that cautious sentence was too much for the Global Climate Coalition. It was sort of the end of the line, (laughs) Uh, real recognition that humans were no longer simply innocent bystanders in the climate system. We were actually active participants. And unfortunately for me, I was the messenger, and a lot of powerful people didn't like that message. And they personally attacked you? The Global Climate Coalition, um, shortly after this report was published in early 1996, uh, produced a report entitled... IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, institutionalized scientific cleansing. And this was at the time that ethnic cleansing was going on in Bosnia. So the accusation was that I specifically was responsible for purging 
all scientific uncertainty from this chapter of the IPCC report. So it was a pretty serious allegation, and one gentleman uh, circulated an email uh, stating that I had been indicted or was about to be indicted by the Hague International Court of Justice for, quote, falsification of international scientific documents, unquote. So nothing in my scientific career had prepared me for that kind of reaction. I thought, the report's published, I can go back to being a dad, to being a husband, to doing my job, but I was wrong. Real hardball. Uh, Tim Flannery, you were in Japan with the late climate scientist Steve Schneider, and you had something of a climate epiphany. Tell us about that. Well, I did. Uh, I'd been working for years before that in the high mountains of New Guinea, and I'd seen that the tree line was advancing on all of those mountains. And I knew that there was some sort of climate signal there, but couldn't kind of put it together in my mind what was happening. And uh, I went to a, a biodiversity conference in Japan, and Steve Snyder spoke for an hour, and that totally changed my world. It put everything in context. I could see then that those alpine environments with all of their unique flora and fauna just wouldn't survive unless we did something about climate change. The mountains weren't high enough to provide a refuge for them. So that was it then for me. I just was uh, decided I had to do something, and I thought the best thing I can do is write a book to explain it to people who perhaps don't understand it as, as well as I did. I was a scientist, you know, a trained scientist, and I'd missed the full importance of it. So I just tried to, I sat down, it took me about four years to go through the same literature that you would have gone through, Ben, just to put it in simple terms for people, uh, what this was all about. And um, so that was the outcome. And that book, if, if that was the, the Weathermakers, was, yeah. uh, that book came out in 2005 or so. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people have been impacted by that book, including Richard Branson, including myself. I read that book when I was in the Arctic in 2007, uh, bouncing around the Arctic Sea in uh, Russian icebreaker. And I read that book when I was up there with scientists. So I'm one of the many people uh, that was impacted by that book. Tim Flannery, also, you write in your latest book, Climate of, of Hope, about the 2014 Australian Open. So tell us what an uh, important moment that was in Australia that really drove home climate reality. Sure. Well, look, I live in the city of Melbourne where the Australian Open is played. And the people of Melbourne are very proud of it. It's their one moment in the global sun, you know, when everyone's looking at Melbourne and what's happening there. And in 2014, uh, unfortunately, the, 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 the Open coincided with a really exceptional heat wave. We had three days in a row with temperatures above 40 to 42 degrees Celsius. Ben, you can help me there. It must be above 110 Fahrenheit. It's somewhere up there. And in the courts, temperatures were in the low to mid-50s. And we had a 1,000 spectators that had to be treated by paramedics for, for heat stress. And uh, the, the players bravely played on, but it clearly had got to the point where that just couldn't go on. So uh, the match was stopped. And you can imagine the consequences of that but when you've got all the sponsorship deals and the broadcasting deals and everything. It just horrendous, you know. But, but it did happen. And uh, months later, um, scientists produced uh, a study looking at that heat wave and just said... Was it human-caused or not? And what they did was a, a series of computer runs, um, some of which excluded the human-caused greenhouse gases and some of which included it. They did 12,000 runs where the human influence was excluded, and only once out of those 12,000 runs did they get conditions, anything like the reality that transpired at that time. Uh, once you add the human greenhouse gases into it, it becomes much, much more common that you get those extreme events. So for the first time, at least in Australia, we were able to say this wouldn't have happened without the human influence. This was caused by humans, this disruption. So that was a big moment for us. 
And Rebecca Shaw, uh, climate is abstract, even for people who are tennis fans and see, you know, melting tennis balls. Climate is still pretty abstract, but food is one area where uh, it's real for people. And there's some interesting shifts happening in food and food companies that are really trying to address climate solutions. Not so much talking about climate, but talking about good, healthy food. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the things that so, so I, I really appreciate the book uh, and the word hope in the title. Um, Ten years ago, I was not so hopeful um, because, and I think what part of the reason was there weren't enough people who understood the the specifics of the consequences of climate change, the way that scientists were were understanding them. But what's happening now is you begin to see the impacts actually becoming very real, and when the impacts are are actually affecting the things we care about, our, our health, our safety, our food supply, or our, our ability to grow certain kinds of food, or even our pocketbooks, we begin to pay attention. And it's really happening in very different kinds of way across the planet, but people are experiencing the impacts of climate change in the ways that they really, really care about. And one of those areas is food. And, um, and, and food companies are paying attention. Food companies are paying attention to the shifts in market for healthy and local food, but they're also really, really paying attention to trying to match that, the, that healthy food production and getting it to their market with the risks that are associated, the climbing risks that are associated with uh, increasing temperatures and more variable precipitation in the future. And so they're really paying attention and they're making some really significant commitments to uh, decrease greenhouse gas emissions from their entire corporation to make sure that when they're sourcing food, they're doing so in a way that is healthy for the environment and that builds resilience in farming systems. And they're also making sure that they're, they're looking at their supply chains, trying to limit the, the transport routes. And so as you begin to see companies or institutions or individuals or municipalities feeling the pain around safety, around, around food, around health, or around the pocketbook, changes are being made. And those changes, whether they call it climate change responses or not, they're very, very important for uh, our, our ability to adapt to climate change. And we're seeing it in food companies in a big way. So tell us about Cheerios and Campbell's Soup, two icons in the, the American supermarket yeah, and kitchens. Yeah, so, so we work... Um, we work uh, with uh, large corporations to help them uh, make sustainability commitments and follow those sustainability commitments all the way down to the ground. And some of those, a few of those org- uh, companies that we're working with include Walmart, Kellogg's, General Mills. They are really making amazing commitments because one of those places we're seeing, again, climate impacts that are most severe, most quickly are in the farming community, in our ability to produce food. They are making real investments into their companies and outside their companies. So supply chains are the link between the, say, General Mills and its Cheerios to the to the. Uh, oat miller to the oat grower all the way down to the farm and they're making very real commitments in the farm in the farm so they're skipping all the way down to the where the food's being produced to make investments and commitments to soil health that will increase resilience for food production over time to decrease fertilizer use 
which actually uh, emits a very powerful greenhouse gas, nitrous oxide, 300 times more powerful than CO2. And it's, if it's overused in farming systems, it, it sits on the farm and then gets emitted as a, as a greenhouse gas. And they're also making really significant commitments to water use efficiency. So as precipitation becomes more variable, we can uh, make sure that we have sustainable water supplies and healthy food being grown for uh, all of our needs. It's a real it's a real challenge. Food companies can't do it alone, but I, I see them uh, certainly in the work that we do as some of the leaders because this is where the pinch point is right now. Tim Flannery, I vividly remember, I think it was 2008, when uh, rice was rationed at Costco in California because there was an Australian drought and rice out of Australia. So what's been the impact? Uh, are you seeing similar signs of optimism and change in the agricultural area in Australia? Look, we, we certainly are. I think you, you're quite right that farmers are at the cutting edge of this. They watch the seasons carefully. They know things are changing. Um, I was just speaking to Australian grape growers recently, and they told me that they had seen that the, the season for harvest had advanced by a month over a couple of decades. That's very significant for them. Uh, and many of them are buying uh, land in Tasmania, which is the southernmost part of Australia, because where they grow now, it's just getting too hot. The grapes are getting sunburned. They don't have the reliability, the water reliability. And bushfires are tainting the grapes with the smoke because we're getting really mega fires in Australia now as well. So conditions are changing. And um, we, we are seeing farmers now become much more proactive about reducing emissions. We've got a fantastic institution in Australia called the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. And it's helping farmers to reduce emissions wherever it can. So if you own a piggery, you can go to the CEFC for some funding and unlock some more bank funding uh, to put a biodigester in so that you deal with that waste rather than just let it emit methane, which is you know, 20 times more potent than uh, CO2 as a greenhouse gas. Um, likewise, if you, if you have a, um, a, a feedlot helping do the same sort of thing. So there's a lot of investment going into the regional rural sector now. We've also got a, a policy called the Carbon Farming Initiative, which helps farmers at a, at a much more hands-on level. So if farmers want to change their practice of the way they graze their animals so that you go into rotational grazing, that means you move the animals around the pasture rather than just let them roam free. Uh, that helps perennial grasses grow and you get a deeper root mass and more carbon in the soils. So that can be funded as well. So I think there's, I'm, I'm quite optimistic about the farm sector in Australia. I think they have the capacity to change uh, and with a little bit of assistance we should see some big reductions in emissions. Is it going to affect Australian beer? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, that's a, that's a great question. Uh, that's one I haven't looked into, but it's certainly affecting as Australian As soon as it wine. does, the whole system's going to change. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Sunburned grapes, I like that one. Uh, ben, ben Santer, is there sometimes a research bias in science to come up with big headline-grabbing uh, studies that affect the whole world? Do you think there's a bias toward doom and gloom in science? No, I don't. I think that our currency is getting the science right. In the end, that's what scientists are judged on. Did you get the science right? So the greatest good is knowing that your results are appropriate, that you are, um, were, were obtained with appropriate methods, your inferences um, are appropriate, that you drew from those um, research procedures and that your um, findings are going to stand the, the test of time. 
in the end, I think that's what most of us really care about. Did you get the science right? Not did you get the big headline? Rebecca Shaw, a lot of the changes that are happening are social and cultural and perhaps not so measurable. I think some people in climate conversations focus on, you know, how much carbon did you reduce and how much energy displaced, that sort of thing. So uh, do we think that sometimes measurement is um, sort of overemphasized in, in the social? We're talking about a social change here. Yeah, I mean, we are talking about a social change now. But if you if you think about how climate science came up through, <laughs> came to prominence, it really came through the physical physical and natural scientists, where, science where we are looking at um, if you do this, if you add this much greenhouse gases, what is it going to do to the atmosphere and what will that imp- how will the change weather patterns and how will that affect the things we care about, whether it be the plants or the animals or, or sea level rise or, or so on. And so it, it turns out it has a big, a really big effect. And so it became more doom and gloom as we went on. But one of the things that I think that um, really began to show up later on was how we all interact with that kind of information and what we do with that information and how we make sense of it. And sometimes the kind of information that comes out just about the physical or natural science and the impacts isn't the kind of information that you and I can use to actually to actually create change. And so what I've seen a whole lot more in the last five years in particular is a lot more attention on how uh, all of us interpret that kind of information and what kind of information we need in order to create the kind of change that's going to matter at a collective level and not on an individual level. And so you see a whole lot more focus on that. And we certainly use a lot of that, um, a, a lot of that new science that's coming out of the social science literature and the psychology literature to really think about how we deliver our message in a more, much more effective way to help people who need to know uh, under, understand what the natural scientists and the physical scientists are talking about because it's really severe. And, and I just think 10 years ago, I used to talk about, don't you all understand it's so bad? <laughs> and now, now I understand that lots of people don't think like I do. And so it's really more important for me to be thinking about how's the audience going to uh, hear what I say? And I'm using the latest research coming out of academia to really do that very well. And it's not like it's new science. It's new to, the, uh, to this particular application uh, of science. So it's, it's a really incredibly exciting time to be working on this issue because you really see a lot of social change. You see people dealing with this information. There's a lot of positive reaction out there on the planet to help us adapt, to create more resilient society, more resilient food systems, and to really take a leadership role and really studying what's going on in those places and why those people are able to take a leadership role and really move the ball forward in, in terms of creating positive change so we avert disaster, I think is really worth our attention. Getting off fossil fuels could result in uh, healthier people, cleaner communities, cleaner economy. Uh, Tim Flannery, if someone's listening to this, what are some top three things that you suggest someone can do? Okay, all right, what do I do in my life? What do I change tomorrow? Well, you know, when I wrote The Weathermakers 10 years ago, I had a list in the back of the book about things people could do, you know, put solar panels on their roof, change their light globes and whatever. But the one thing that, the new thing that's happened since then that I think is just infinitely powerful is the emergence of these groups of concerned citizens Mm -hmm. who are working together to do something. You know, we've got a little group in Australia called Solar Citizens who own PV panels on rooftops, you know, solar panels on roofs. Uh, They're hardly radicals. Most of them are pensioners or people with a heavy mortgage, you know. They're (laughs) watching their budget, so they want to make sure they control their energy costs. 
But they've formed this group and they now lobby in marginal electorates to say to governments, you know, we like this stuff. We want more clean energy. And, you know, Australia's leading the world with solar rooftop installations. About one in five Australians now benefits from solar electricity on their rooftop. So joining groups like that is really, really important. Australian Youth Climate Coalition, I think there's an American Youth Climate Coalition, is another great out- outlet for younger people. They use social media in ways that astonish me when I see that. So no matter what your age is or what your interest, I think joining those groups online is just really, really a powerful thing to do. Talking about it. And Rebecca Shaw, other things that an individual could do, you know, any tips for people listening to this? Uh, if, if you already got solar panels, maybe electric car, what can people do? Well, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with the food theme because it depends on how, you know, if, if you think about it from the world from a physical scientist or a natural science point of view, and you look at the role of agriculture in creating climate change, you come up with a certain set of numbers. And it's if you include deforestation, you'll be right around the third of the problem. If you don't include include deforestation, and most land clearing for deforestation is, is because of agriculture. Uh, and if you don't include that, you're about 17, globally about 15 or 17 percent of all the greenhouse gas emissions come from agriculture. So, you know, what are you going to do with that? Well, can we talk about the food system? So the Food and Agriculture Organization did a study in, so this is a UN scientific body based out of Rome, did a study in 2012 that said, if we look at the food sector, what are the greenhouse gas emissions from the food sector? And it's 30% without deforestation, so 50% with deforestation. So I, I, I apologize. There's lots of ways you can, you can count these numbers up. But the point is what we eat and how we eat it and when we eat it is a really important driver of, of greenhouse gas emissions. And so if you're eating things that come from far away, they, t- they have a, a high carbon footprint because they had to be transported there. If it's a water-intensive uh, crop in a in a drought ridden region it's a it's a greenhouse gas intensive food and i think the biggest piece of it and the thing that we can all do is that 40% of all the food that's produced is wasted and so just by watching that we don't waste food at restaurants in uh, in our homes that we're careful that what we buy we're going to consume is a really important step forward both in uh, in reducing greenhouse gas emissions but also saving water, that's a scarce resource, and also in, um, maintaining biodiversity on the planet. So I think paying and close attention to the food and not wasting food is a really critical piece of it. I recently talked with a CEO of a company called Impossible Foods. They've raised $180 million of venture funding, former Stanford medical professor, and they're creating what they say will be a fantastic burger made from plants that people will, meat lovers will love. They're not after the people who are members of EDF and vegans and environmentalists on the coast. They're after the sort of the heartland meat lovers and they want to displace the cow because they think that animal protein production is the most harmful industry on the planet, uh, worse than, than big oil. Something really interesting to watch. I hope to uh, have a taste of one of those soon. Uh, ben Santer, what can a person do to have an impact, individual? Educate yourself. Uh, to me, it's that uh, understanding of the basics of the science, the uh, understanding of the nature and causes of climate change and likely outcomes. If we had an informed scientifically savvy electorate uh, will be in a much better position to make wise choices on the what to do about all of this. So to me, that's the best thing you can do. 
What Listen to programs like Climate One, understand the basic science, uh, get involved, get in, engaged, um, don't sit on the sidelines. What do you say to a person who says to you, I heard it stopped, there's the pause, and there's been no warming for the last 15 years? Ben Santer, what do you say? Sure. Uh, I first encountered that narrative in congressional testimony in uh, 2011, where <laughs> one of one of the witnesses made that very sentence, made that very statement. Uh, global warming stopped in 1998, and he argued that computer models of the climate system, the very models that Tim talked about, were incapable of uh, producing pause periods with little or no warming of your surface when those computer models were run with human-caused changes in greenhouse gases. So this is what I like to call science by uh, assertion and by evidence, uh, eminence of position. He produced no evidence to support uh, those claims that global warming stopped and that computer models couldn't produce these kind of pauses. And he was wrong on on both counts. Uh, We know that Uh, Climate change is not an either-or proposition, all human, all natural. It's both. Uh, By burning fossil fuels, we've increased the levels of heat-trapping greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide from roughly 260 parts per million uh, at the time of the Industrial Revolution to the historic threshold of 400 parts per million now, an increase of about 43%. And what we know is that uh, given the physics of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, you increase the concentrations of those heat-trapping greenhouse gases, the planet's going to warm. But that warming is going to take place against the backdrop of this rich year-to-year and decade-to-decade natural climate variability. So things we know and love here in California, like El Ninos and La Niñas and other uh, modes of natural climate variability, So the expectation always was, scientifically, that you wouldn't see some um, linear increase in temperature, some straight line with each year inexorably warmer than the previous year at every point on the Earth's surface. You would see periods where warming accelerated, and you would see short periods where uh, warming um, showed little or no increase, where there was a slowdown. That's, That's the way the climate system Behaves And indeed, that's what we saw um, for much of the last 15 years. But as Rebecca pointed out, 2014 was the warmest year on record. 2015 is going to be warmer still, likely one degree Celsius, so nearly 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit, warmer than it was uh, at the time of the Industrial Revolution. And the pause is over. Uh, Now, scientists have spent a lot of time, um, our group included, trying to understand the combination of natural and human factors that have operated over the last 15 years. But the bottom line is, you don't look at one short 10 or 15 year noisy period of record to make inferences about uh, whether there is or is not a human effect on climate. That's silly. It's kind of like looking at the one day of the New York Stock Exchange to understand that the long-term trend, that it goes up and it goes down, but the long-term trend is upward. Uh, If you're just joining us, Ben Santos, a climate scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Other guests today at Climate One are Tim Flannery, author of the new book, Atmosphere of Hope, and Rebecca Shaw, a scientist with the Environmental Defense Fund. I'm Greg Dalton. Um, We're going to go to our lightning round uh, with a brief, brisk uh, 
agree or disagree uh, questions, starting with Tim Flannery. Uh, it's a bit of a, uh, it's an American reference joke, but uh, question. You put hope in the title of your book because you bought Barack Obama's hopey changey thing. <laughs> <laughs> I put hope in the title of the book. I disagree. If I got it, agree, disagree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, disagree. Yeah. disagree. You, you put it in because? I put it in because I finally, after a decade of, of misery, felt hopeful. A few things had started to change. I could just see the light, you know. And uh, that was really important for me. I thought other people should uh, see it too. And that was natural, not, not, uh, no medication involved? Uh, no, med- no, no medication <laughs> involved. Good. We like it the healthy way, organic here. Uh, ben Santer, in the battle for American hearts and minds, the princes of darkness are more effective than the princes of truth and light. Disagree. I think, uh, as we see now with Exxon and the story that's unfolded in the last couple of weeks about what Exxon scientists knew. But they won for a couple of years. They, they won for quite a while. They won for, they won for quite a while, you know, but the truth will out. The physics of the climate system will always trump ideology and will always trump disinformation. And that's what's happening here. As, as Tim mentioned, the story in the physical climate system is emerging that gradual warming signal with gradual increases in greenhouse gases. But there's also, in parallel, a story emerging in public understanding of this issue. Uh, uh, So I I don't think that the princes of darkness or the forces of unreason, as I like to call them, uh, I don't think they'll win. You know, they've they've fought a, a rear guard action now for two to three decades. But in the end, if the science is credible, uh, that message is going to come out and people are going to do the right thing. Let's but hope for a I Disney just, ending. Okay, yeah. Could I just say, Ben, that uh, they may not win, but they have cost us dearly. That decade of lost opportunity that they've cost us now has been uh, the darkest, I think, we've been through. I, I agree with that completely, uh, but I do think that in the end they will be held accountable, as we see now with Exxon and with the Global Climate Coalition. Those questions are being asked. What did you know? When did you know it? And why didn't you tell the truth about the science? Very interesting. Uh, Rebecca Shaw, uh, yes or no? Some corporations try to use environmental groups to greenwash. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. And I, and I think that this is one of the reasons why I see so much hope, because it's, it's happening less and less. There are, there are real risks in uh, current business models in corporations if they don't take into account a changing climate, particularly as it relates to their raw materials. And so there's just a, there's, there's a real, um, one of the things that's really important to understand is we are, we need to go through a, a very big transition to get to a new model way of doing business that doesn't uh, continue to emit greenhouse gases that t- takes care of the earth, make sure that we're using water resources wisely, making sure that we're um, not creating air pollution and water pollution to the extent that we are. A- and it means a different way of doing business. And that's a really hard transition, as hard as the transition we just went through in the industrialized, where we industrialized. And that took 150, 170 years. And so if, we're, if we know we need to do business differently moving forward, 
we need a transition. And there are lots of institutions and lots of people that don't know how to do that. What I see is amazing effort at cooperation and collaboration that we've never seen before amongst unlikely allies, environmentalists and big corporations, working together to figure out how you create that transition to that new state that we actually need. We need new business models. And I think the other really positive and really wonderful thing here is that there's so much energy coming up in the millennial generation to really take on these big challenges of this transition. And you can see it in in the high-tech community where solutions, where lots of uh, kids coming out of college today and, and coming out of graduate school are going directly into this social change in this transition. They're really looking to create change. So has there been greenwashing? Absolutely. Is the time of greenwashing over? Absolutely, because the time for real change is now, and there's a deeper recognition that it's imperative for all of us. All right, let's get back to our lightning round with yes or no answers. The, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, I, I let it put the cat out of the barn on that one. Uh, 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 ben Santer, personal attacks on climate scientists have had a chilling effect on scientific inquiry. Yes or no? Uh, Yes, okay. but I don't think it stopped the scientists from doing their job. Rebecca Shaw, we would not be in such a mess if more women were in positions of corporate and political power. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Tim Flannery, people concerned about civil disorder and food shortages driven by climate disruption should move to New Zealand because they have lots of water and sheep to eat. <laughs> No. <laughs> Move to Australia? I, I don't believe in the refuge theory. We're a global community now, and um, we're going to face this together or we'll fall, to fall divided. Mm-hmm. No, nowhere to run or hide. How'd yeah. they do on the lightning round? I think they did pretty well. <laughs> and now, here's a Climate One Minute. To many people, the facts surrounding global warming seem so obvious that it's hard to understand why others don't share their concern. When he came to Climate One last May, UC Berkeley linguistics professor George Lakoff explained it this way. If you have uh, a certain worldview that doesn't allow you to see the facts, you won't see them. And the reason is very simple. Uh, In general, when you perceive something, something comes into your eyes, you have about uh, a tenth of a second before it becomes conscious, and it will change in that tenth of a second to fit what you already know or believe. It will change fast. So when you have facts that come in that won't fit the way that you understand the world, then the facts will either be ignored, ridiculed, or attacked because they will threaten the way you understand the world or not threaten them. People will be happy with the way you understand the world and ignore the facts. But the frames that frame the facts are part of your brain. That part of your brain is not going to change. So you have lots of people in this country who have conservative worldviews and, you know, they just don't see it. It's not like they're denying it. It's not like they, oh, I know that fact and I'm going to deny it. It's like it's not even a fact. George Lakoff, author of Don't Think of an Elephant, Know Your Values and Frame the Debate. He spoke with us in May of 2015. Now back to Gray Dalton and our live audience at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, Tim Flannery, you write about a number of third-way solutions, exciting technologies from planting trees to possibly storing carbon dioxide in the Antarctic. So tell us what's really exciting that you see that could really help on the solution side. 
Well, look, I see those technologies as being inevitable because we are, we've already committed, just with the greenhouse gas in the air, to one and a half degrees of warming. My scientific colleagues tell me that the Great Barrier Reef will be dead. Australia's Great Barrier Reef just can't survive that amount of warming. Moreover, it looks like we're not going to be able to change our energy systems fast enough to avoid two degrees. You know, we've had this decade of lost opportunity. It's been horrific. Um, but the hope is that, that we can draw CO2 out of the air at scale. And can I just tell you how this came about? Um, in 2006, I met Sir Richard Branson. Um, he wanted to discuss my book. And he expressed pessimism about humanity acting fast enough to avoid disaster. In hindsight, he was absolutely right. But what he did was set up something called the Virgin Earth Challenge. It's a £25 million prize awarded to technologies with the potential to pull a gigaton of carbon out of the air. That's about 3.7 gigatons of CO2. Um, we've had 11,000 entries. Now, for years, I was not certain that we could do that. But just in the last 18 months, I've seen enough new developments that I think we will see that happen. Carbon-negative concretes, um, carbon nanofibres directly from CO2, the possibility of putting big chiller boxes in the Antarctic and cooling the air enough that the CO2 falls out of snow. I mean, these, some of these things sound like science fiction now, but, you know, we're talking about 2050. It's going to take 20 or 30 years for these technologies to develop. And just think about the transition of last century from 1915 to 1950. So the horse-drawn era, um, you know... Um, it just a, a distant age, an age of empires that hadn't changed for centuries. And then 35 years later, 1950, nuclear power, jet aircraft, half the world around about living under communism. It sounds like science fiction. And I think that 2050 is going to sound even more like science fiction than it does, it does today, um, you know, in terms of those, those figures. So, but the thing we know is the gas isn't going to come out of the air by itself. It will be there driving more and more adverse climate change as the decades go by. We need to get that gas out of the air. It is entirely possible to get it out at the gigaton scale. We can see the technologies that can do that. One I didn't mention is seaweed farming. You know, a desktop study suggested if we planted 9% of the world's oceans with seaweed, we could draw down all of current emissions because seaweed just grows so fast. You know, Now, I, th I thought that was fantastic when I first heard it, but then I did the calculation. 9% of the world's oceans, an area about four and a half times the size of Australia. It's a really, really big area. And then you've got the problem, what do you do with all of that seaweed? Make you know, sushi. It's Come a on. challenge. You know? <laughs> and, and how do you get the CO2 out of it? So there are challenges there. And look, when I, I wrote um, Atmosphere of Hope, I did the best conservative calculation I could of what these technologies might be achieving by 2050. I think that conservatively, and that's not thinking about seaweed or any of those things that are just at a very early stage now, we could be drawing about 40% of current global emissions out of the atmosphere by, by 2050. And that may really buy us some time uh, in order to, to both adapt and to, to reduce our emissions so we can avoid or just skim below that two-degree guardrail. If you're just joining us, Tim Flannery is author of the new book, Atmosphere of Hope. Other guests today at Climate One are Ben Santer from Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and Rebecca Shaw is a scientist with the Environmental Defense Fund. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's also talk about solar, which is a very real, very positive story. I think one of the, the most positive mm -hmm. stories. Tim Flannery, you mentioned it earlier. You write in your book that solar costs have come down 100 times in 10 years. That's phenomenal. It's, it's incredible. Is there more left to go? Solar is still only in 1% of power in the United States. Wow. So how revolutionary could this be? It's, look, it's, it is coming down at 10% per annum. It has been doing for the last 30 years. 
costs are, in, are just, they're very competitive now that, you know, solar has made it to the market. Wind is a similar story. I've got a friend who uh, invests in wind farms and his company just signed a power purchase agreement in Texas to deliver electricity at about 4.1 cents a kilowatt hour. I mean, that was fantasy a year ago. Mm-hmm. Costs have come down so much. And I've worked with them um, with various large wind companies and they see a total revolution happening in the next five years. They see containerized wind turbines. So everything comes in a shipping container built on site, um, uh, 3D printers on the blades to keep them up to scratch so you don't need to replace the blades, you know, gearless wind turbines with the heads with so few moving parts that the maintenance is cut down. In the next five years, the cost of electricity from wind turbines is projected by these companies to be half what it is today, the cost of electricity from wind. So we are seeing a huge change in technology in these, these, uh, these areas, and I'm absolutely confident that they are going to push fossil fuels out of the market, especially once we get battery technology um, down to cost as well. The trouble is that the time. It's gonna, the transition can't happen overnight uh, globally. So we're committed to quite a lot, emitting quite a lot of CO2 in the next 20, 30, maybe even 40 years. Let's talk a little uh, bit more about Australia. Uh, Tim Flannery, you were a climate commissioner there. Uh, th- there's been some politics. Uh, climate has been a national political story in, in Australia the way it hasn't been in the United States. Yeah. Some elections turned. Uh, prime ministers coming in and out of power, partly based on climate. You had to have some armed guard protection because of your role. Tell us about that. Well, it, it's not just partly because of climate change. We've lost about four prime ministers of last count uh, over the climate issue. It's the big issue for us. It divides us down the middle as a country. You know, we um, used to, just a few years back, export uh, or control more of the seaborne coal trade than Saudi Arabia controlled of the seaborne oil trade. We were the coal czars, you know. And so it was a big lobby, a big industry in Australia. But we're also at the forefront of the impacts of climate change. So everyone knows it as a lived experience in Australia. So we're really divided. So, you know, what Prime Minister said about climate change determined their fate. Um, We had a government uh, that was very proactive, trying to do something about climate change. They asked me to be the climate commissioner for the country, which I accepted. So I did that job for three years under incredibly difficult circumstances. I can tell you, we were out there every fortnight talking to the Australian public. And uh, as you said, we had to have guards at various times. Photographs of my house were published online with incitements from our own Indigenous Rush Limbaugh types to you know, do something about this problem. Um, so it was really tough. And the government changed. A very anti-climate change or climate change denier came to power. Their very first act was to sack the Climate Commission. We decided that wasn't good enough, and some of our commissioners were pretty conservative. Sack, so that means that to do away with it. Yeah, right? do, yeah. So sorry about the colloquialism. Yes, to get rid of us. That was their very first act as soon as they came to power. <laughs> and we just said... Do you know, we're not going to go. We're going to appeal to the public for some funding to keep us going, just with the same group of people trying to do an educational role. And within five days, we had a million dollars. The Australian public really cared. We now run an organisation that's three times the size of the organisation we ran in government. And because it's not as bureaucratic as the government organisation was, we're a lot more effective. So... uh, we just decided to bounce back. And, uh, and we're hardly a group of radicals. Could I say, you know, one of our climate commissioners, who's now our chairman of the Climate Council, is the ex-CEO of BP Australasia, a fossil fuel company. So uh, there, there is hope in Australia. I, I think uh, 
we'll keep pushing forward no matter what happens. And there's also been a carbon tax. Australia was one of the first places to put a price on carbon, but there was, some people said it was a little bit of Swiss cheese, that, that it wasn't really an effective carbon tax. But it's, tell us, is that still in place? It was a very effective carbon tax. It, it reduced the amount of coal in our electricity mix from about 77% down to 72% over the two years it ran. Um, but it, it was abolished with the, with the sceptical government uh, that came to power. And um, now we've, we've lost all of, all of those gains. Uh, and t- look, I think we could have sold the carbon tax better. I wish that the government had just cut a cheque for everyone as a sort of rebate for, for any additional costs that they would have faced in their electricity bills and so forth. That wasn't the way we ended up doing it. And uh, we, we have the distinction now of being the only country on the planet that's gone backwards in terms of implementing a carbon price. And uh, that needs to be addressed in our future. And lastly, before we uh, go to audience questions, you just spent a couple of weeks in Canada. The government just changed their uh, Canada, left the Kyoto Protocol, has been a, becoming kind of a petro state recently with the oil sands. Uh, new prime minister in Canada, younger generational change. What's happening up there? Oh, look, enormous hope. Um, Canada, they are seeing the climate impacts very clearly, just like Australia. In fact, Canada's kind of like a colder version of Australia, really. It's, <laughs> we're really, really similar. <laughs> Queen's head's on the money. It's all kind of, you know, we all like beer and whatever. But, um, but I think that they're going to do some great things. And, in fact, there's a heads of Commonwealth governments meeting in Malta just before the big climate meeting. So our new Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, who wants to do something about climate change, will meet Mr Trudeau, who's the new um, Prime Minister of Canada, for the first time. And I think we'll see some really good action. In fact, the groundwork's already been laid. Uh, the, the Liberals, the Canadian Liberals, have done a very good job in terms of trying to be very inclusive and get everyone on board for some really deep and meaningful action. We're going to go to our audience questions, invite your participation. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, Richard Bailey, the Climate Museum Institute. Uh, question for Ben Santer. Uh, d- given that museums are not beholden to corporate bottom lines or government politics or things like that, uh, and they're independent, do you think a Climate Museum Education Center can have a significant change in educating uh, the general public? Yes, I do. And um, truth in advertising, my sister is a uh, Vice President for Science Content at the Miami Museum of Science. So I've interacted with her and her colleagues for many years now in terms of how one might do a better job um, making museums venues for uh, allowing the public to interact and intersect with with climate science. The Science Museum of Minnesota is another um, entity that I've been involved with um, on, on a couple of occasions And they do a terrific job uh, explaining what we do as scientists, why people should care about it, what likely outcomes are. Uh, I think there's a big role for museums uh, in terms of interfacing with the public on the science. Make it it more real. Um, Let's hope that that one in Miami is not underwater before too long. Let's um, let's have our next question on Climate One. Welcome. Uh, Thank you. I was wondering uh, how uh, uh, the panel would uh, look at uh, how the governments of the world all seem to be interested in growth, uh, economic growth. How can we uh, deal with climate change and still deal with economic growth? Tim Flannery, that's a tough one. The whole system is built. Everyone's uh, retirement plan who's listening to this is built on compounded quarterly growth. 
That's right. But there was a very interesting study produced by the International Energy Agency earlier this year Mm -hmm. that said for the first time since they'd been keeping records, which is the last 40 years, they'd seen in 2014 a year in which global economic growth continued, but that emissions growth stalled. So it looks like we might just be entering this phase where we're decoupling the the global economic system from a dependency on fossil fuels and the emissions that come with that. And solar and wind are obviously part of that, but the billions and billions of actions that people have done around the world are also a big part of it to to be more efficient in their use. Um, So I'm, I'm sort of hopeful that we might just be at the beginning of this new era so we can continue growing our economies in very productive ways that aren't so carbon intensive and aren't so resource intensive um, and, and continue to have that but reduce the emissions. We see we, we won't know for a couple of years whether you know, we've reached that point but initial data is pretty, pretty interesting. And California has successfully done that for a couple of decades. California mm-hmm. has grown its economy, grown its population and uh, energy and, and greenhouse gas output uh, has stalled or declined. Let's go to our next audience question. Uh, I think there's a question for you, Ms. Shah. Do you see any evidence that the corporations, companies, businesses that recognize that climate change is a threat to their business are willing to speak in an organized public and political way uh, to counter the rhetoric of those other companies that refuse to recognize um, the validity of climate change. So are they willing to do that so that the conversation is business to business, business to government, as opposed to environmentalists uh, yeah, to I, business? I, yeah, I do, th- I do think there's a lot of that happening. <clears throat> there are, you know, just as I, different, we're all experiencing climate change and the impacts of climate change at different ways given how we interact with what our business is and what, where we live and so on. I think that different private businesses are feeling the pinch in different ways. And you can see the food companies are, are concerned because of the agricultural output and its impact on on that. Really, really, uh, it hits their bottom line. And so they're some of the first actors. And so they stood, they were at the UN Climate Summit in 2014 to launch a, an initiative called the Climate Smart Agriculture, with so farmers standing next to NGOs, standing next to government, standing next to corporations, saying we're going to commit to decreasing greenhouse gas emissions from agricultural production, increasing farmer incomes and livelihood, and increasing resilience and and environmental outputs from from agriculture. And those three things, companies, they, everybody came to that stage and were committing to that range, those range of outputs. So they are taking stands. They are taking stands with one another. The, there are, it's really hard in a lot of some industries to be the first mover. And so the easier thing to do is to line up a whole bunch of actors with you in your same sector and move together. And we're seeing that happen um, because nobody, because you don't want to stick your neck out there and have it left off because there are consequences to taking bold stands. But we are seeing those who are feeling the impacts, the greatest and seeing threats to their bottom line in the near term are moving more boldly and they're moving boldly together and whether they can impact other sectors it is it's a it's a question but i think that you're always going to have sectors that are going to lead first because for obvious reasons and sectors that will drag their heels but eventually they are moving and they are taking bold stands uh let's go to our next question welcome thank you peter joseph with citizens climate lobby my question to each of you is it really does seem like things are different now than they were a year ago it just feels different publicly with 
the Keystone decision, the Exxon revelations, Paris coming up, and this groundswell from corporate world and um, people's movements all over the world. My question to each of you is, your hope meter, I want to know what, you, what will influence your hopeometer going forward in terms of what comes out of Paris, what are your milestones that you're looking at to gauge your own personal sense of dread versus hope versus how the climate system is going off as it will? Thank you. Tim Flannery. Wow, that's a, that's a great question. Look, I think um, the Paris meeting, we can already call it a success. You know, we are going to get off that worst-case scenario trajectory, which is important. We still might be heading at 2.7 degrees by the end of the century, but that's a start. I think if we have a really short review period in pa- for, the, for future meetings after Paris, that will help a lot as well, because technology is changing fast. But uh, there's a couple of big issues that still dodge us. Um, the, the gas issue, the fracking issue, you know, how much more money are we going to invest in that and lock ourselves in? to a fossil fuel future. You know, the sooner we start backing out of that, the better, because we won't be sinking capital into that, and hopefully we can go to the renewables. You know, what's going to happen with battery technology? You know, I've got a huge, great hope for electric vehicles, but, you know, Tesla only made 36,000 units last year. There's a number of cars they made, and, you know, China's putting 15 million cars a year on the road. How quickly can we scale that up? You know, that, 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 that sort of stuff is hugely important. Um, and, of course, you know, just how quickly we can institute some sort of carbon price, some sort of carbon tax with dividend or whatever. Um, you know, if the sooner we do that, the quicker we can slam down on emissions. So they're some of the key things I'm looking at. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. I know everybody feels badly that we're missing that important political uh, <laughs> program this evening. Uh, but I'm wondering if any of you know of the congressmen or senators we ought to be supporting who are carrying the water for climate change in, in our Congress. We'd like to tackle that. It's not for Tim, the American politics. Yes. Um, Chris Gibson's a Republican member of Congress from New York who's got some Republicans together to come out of the closet on climate and say they need some action. Anyone else want to tackle that? Kelly Ayotte, uh, Lindsey Graham, Pataki. Uh, a George number, Pataki. George Pataki, a number of voices Uh, on the Republican side have recognized the reality of human-caused climate change and recognized that this is an issue for American jobs, uh, national security. So I think some of the ideology is is going out of it. That's one of the reasons for for my own personal atmosphere of of hope there, that uh, these, these ideological divides are crumbling. Let's end briefly by telling uh, what you each do to minimize your personal carbon footprint, starting with Tim Flannery. What do you do to... I've got solar panels on the roof. I drive a, hi- drive a hybrid car. I'd love to be able to fly in aircraft that were fueled with biofuels, but I can't do that yet. So <laughs> I fly a lot, and that's probably my biggest, biggest carbon sin. Rebecca Shaw, your carbon sin as well as your uh, carbon. My carbon sin is yeah. my carbon sin is definitely flying, and and uh, I eat very low on the food chain to try and uh, uh, avoid carbon emissions from food, and I drive a hybrid electric car. Ben Santer, carbon sin and, and uh, carbon. Uh, <clears throat> my sin is that my wife lives in Minneapolis, so I spend a lot of time flying uh, between California and Minnesota. On the plus side, I would say. 
I bring um, the science to the people. I try and explain to people in plain English what we know with confidence, what likely outcomes are, and uh, we'll continue to do that to the best of my ability. We have to end it there. Uh, we've been listening today at Climate One for, with uh, Bed Santer, climate scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, Rebecca Shaw, senior lead scientist at the Environmental Defense Fund, and Tim Flannery, author of the new book, Atmosphere of Hope. I'm Greg Dalton. You can listen to podcasts of this and other Climate One programs on our website, climateone.org. I'd like to thank our audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco and listening online and on air. Thank you all for coming and joining us. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Jane Ann Chen is the producer, and Alyssa Kerr is our assistant producer. The audio engineer is John Rieger, with help from Will Llewellyn. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Join us next week for a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.